Before we get into the show, a quick message to say that if you like listening to the Tudor Chess podcast, then perhaps you would consider becoming an official Tudor Chess patron. On my Patreon account, I release a weekly bonus subscriber episode, and coming soon, I'll be launching a brand new series, Historian Unwrapped, where I chat to some of the biggest historians on the planet about their lives as historians. So expect dream dinner party historical guests, controversial opinions, Tudor bugbears, and so on, from the likes of Owen Emerson, Sarah Gristwood, David Lee, and Nicola Tallis. To join, just head to patreon.com forward slash the Tudor chest. He is the most famous king in all of British history, and so it's natural that King Henry VIII has been an almost ever-present figure in film and television. More interpretations of Henry VIII have made their way into film, television, radio, the theatre, and of course fictional books than any other monarch in history. Many of the greatest actors to have ever lived have stepped into Henry VIII's square-toed Tudor slippers, including Charles Lawton in The Private Life of Henry VIII, Richard Burton in Anne of a Thousand Days, and Damien Lewis in Wolf Hall. He was even the subject of a carry-on film, in which he was played to comedic perfection but without a shred of authenticity by Sid James. The King will next be seen in the upcoming film Firebrand, in which he is played by Jude Law opposite Alicia Vikander as Catherine Parr. If the trailer is anything to go by, then Jude Law's Henry VIII will be a superb new addition to the canon of depictions of this most infamous of monarchs. So which of the many interpretations of Henry VIII have been the best, which feel the most accurate, and which should be best left in the past? Welcome back to the Tudor Chess Podcast, episode 25, King Henry VIII in Hollywood. go into this episode, a few things. Firstly, I have a nine-week-old puppy at my feet, so if you hear some whining or yapping, then I apologise, it is Rex, my new little pup. He's very cute though. Secondly, I will be discussing several different depictions of Henry VIII, and so it's entirely possible that you may hear spoilers for things if you haven't seen them. And thirdly, a big part of this episode is a review of the performances, and I will not hold back, so I'm apologising now if you don't care for some of my opinions. I will only be discussing performances which I have seen in their entirety, because I think it's only fair to the performer, and I will also be doing them in order of release, which means that I'm starting all the way back in 1933, 91 years ago with The Private Life of Henry VIII, starring Charles Lawton in the titular role. The film begins 27 years into the reign of King Henry VIII, and as such, the entire storyline of Catherine of Aragon is omitted, 
In fact, rather hilariously and awful at the same time, Catherine's story is described in the opening credits as of no particular interest, and that because she was a respectable woman, that this is the reason that Henry VIII divorced her. It's crazy to consider that this made it into a film that was released less than 100 years ago, but there we go. Much of the storyline of Anne Boleyn is also omitted because of the timeline of the film, with the film actually opening at Anne's execution. The bulk of the movie therefore deals with Henry VIII's third, fourth and fifth marriages, with his final marriage to Catherine Parr taking place within the film's last four minutes. Given how old the film is, it's in black and white, and so we can only guess at the colours of the costumes used, although it can be seen that significant accuracy was given in their creation. The film was a major critical and commercial success, grossing £750,000 against a production budget of £93,000, and was nominated for two Academy Awards, winning Best Actor for Charles Lawton, which makes the actor unique among the performances that I'm discussing today. He remains the only actor to win an Academy Award for the role of Henry VIII. There is nothing wrong with Charles Lawton's acting, However, the characterisation of Henry VIII is definitely the one that can be most credited with establishing the popularised image of Henry VIII as a sort of lecherous, fat glutton who regularly eats whole chickens before throwing the remaining bones over his shoulder. In reality, the king's table manners were highly refined and he was known for being unusually obsessed with hygiene. This interpretation of Henry is also somewhat browbeaten. He comes across as a bit of a lost puppy, looking up from under basset hound eyes as his final wife chastises his gluttony. He later feigns sleep when she suggests that he has a nap, only to skip over to the banquet table when her back is turned, with glee as he tucks into more chicken. It is an enjoyable film, provided you take it for what it is. It's now highly, highly dated, and to a modern audience seems rather silly and very melodramatic. Would it win Oscars now? No. But it's charming in its own way, and so I encourage people to actually give it a watch. It's available in full on YouTube free of charge. From an accuracy standpoint, as far as the way the king looks, it's also pretty strong. Lawton looked every inch Henry VIII, but in character I'm afraid it's not one of the most compelling. In 1966, the most successful Tudor film of all time from an awards perspective was released, A Man for All Seasons which charts the final years of the life of Sir Thomas More. A huge critical success, it would win six of the eight Oscars that it was nominated for, including Best Picture, Best Director and Best Actor for Paul Schofield in the role of Thomas More. Henry VIII was played by Robert Shaw, who would himself land a Best Supporting Actor nomination, although he did not take home the win. Robert Shaw's interpretation of Henry VIII is an interesting one, he certainly looks the part, with excessively broad gold lame coats, short cropped ginger hair and beard, and in personality I also think he comes quite close to certain aspects of the real Henry VIII. The best words to describe his Henry would be loud and bombastic. In almost every scene that he's in, he's shouting, and to articulate that I will include a brief clip. Yes, villainy, secret, opposition, secret, but... Deliberate, willful, meditated opposition, wanted to be poked to master me, Woolsey. What is it? Thought, because I'm simple and plain and deal with every man straightforwardly. Because of that I say, do they take me for a simpleton? 
He's jovial and fun, taking immense pleasure out of making his huge entourage look silly and sycophantic, but equally his personality changes like the wind, and he goes from being the life and soul of the party to taking great offence to trivial matters. This is a Henry who expects everyone around him to laugh at all of his jokes and japes, even if they aren't funny, but who can almost as quickly feel affronted when he is not being taken seriously. This Henry is, in effect, a man full of contradictions. It's definitely one of the more light-hearted interpretations of Henry VIII, and provides some of the comedy relief in a film which is otherwise very serious. Thomas More and his story is not one known to be full of laughs, after all. This is very much Paul Schofield's film, and as such Robert Shaw's role is not huge, but he undoubtedly leaves a big impression, and it's a performance which can't help but make me smile. I think more than any other interpretation of Henry, this shows the fun side of him that was well documented in the earlier years of his reign, and so for that I think it's actually quite an accurate version of Henry, if a little bombastic nonetheless. Three years after the release of A Man For All Seasons, the next big Tudor film came along, and the performance of Henry VIII is undoubtedly one of the most famous. Richard Burton, who played the king in Anne of a Thousand Days, opposite jean vierre Bujold in the role of Anne Boleyn. When you've got an actor who is at the calibre of Richard Burton in the role, you know that you're in for a treat, and he absolutely delivers an incredible performance as Henry VIII, although Burton himself thought otherwise. He hated both the film and his performance, and also, if his diaries are anything to go by, hated working with Jean-Vierre Bujold, complaining that she had all the acting power of a gnat, and cuttingly nicknamed her Gin for her apparent habit of turning up to the set hungover. It's laughable, because Burton's well-known struggles with the bottle make it rather like the pot calling the kettle black. Anne of a Thousand Days is, however, ultimately Anne Boleyn's, and thus Jean-Vierre Bujold's film. And therein lies the main issue that I think Richard Burton had with this film. Jean-Vierre Bujold delivers a powerhouse performance, and remains for many the greatest depiction of Anne Boleyn ever made. Richard Burton is amazing in the role as Henry VIII, but it is Bujold who steals the film. Where Richard Burton does succeed is in the way that he betrays Henry's frustrations and the emotional impact that the crown has. This Henry VIII, perhaps more than any other, presents a king who is tired and feels let down by life. Conversely, he is also arrogant and demanding. Richard Burton's Henry VIII feels the most dangerous of any of the depictions of him. The bubbling anger is never far from the surface, and I think that that would have been true of the real man. Did Cromwell promise you your life if you said this? Answer me! Did he? Yes. He lied. Say what you like, Smeaton, and you will not live. Say what you like. Speak now without lying, for it will avail you nothing. Anne of a Thousand Days also portrays the relationship between Henry and Anne as one which feels relatively believable. There are major historical liberties taken, of course, including one infamous scene in which the king visits Anne in the tower. But the slow-burning passion and eventual love that builds between the two feels realistic. It feels like how it would have played out. Anne of a Thousand Days was nominated for a whopping 11 Oscars, including a Best Actor nomination for Richard Burton, but took home only one win for Best Costume Design, which was totally deserving. Unfortunately, it is the costumes that tells us 
who Richard Burton is meant to be playing, because he looks almost nothing like Henry VIII. He was too lean and short, and his hair and beard far too dark in colour compared to the famously russet-haired Henry VIII. I know these things shouldn't matter, but so much of recreating a figure of such fame as Henry VIII rests on the details, and establishing the right look, for me, is crucial. I think ultimately Richard Burton was cast because he was Richard Burton, which is no bad thing, he was an acting god, but it does somewhat, in my opinion, create a Henry who was cast more for his name than for his ability to convincingly inhabit the role. A year after the release of Anne of a Thousand Days, the six-part television series The Six Wives of Henry VIII was released, starring the Australian actor Keith Michelle in the role of the king. As the name of the series suggests, it focused on each of the six wives of this most infamous Tudor monarch, with each queen given her own episode to tell her story. This also means that unlike earlier interpretations of Henry VIII, in this one we see Keith Michelle go from the very start of Henry VIII's reign right through to his death, providing the actor with the ability to fully inhabit the king and explore all of the different facets of his long tenure as king, in much the same way that Glenda Jackson was able to do a couple of years later in Elizabeth R. It is for this reason that many argue, myself very much included, that Keith Michelle gives us the greatest interpretation of Henry VIII ever seen on screen. We see with piercing transparency the colossal shift in this one man's life as he goes from the young, handsome and charismatic ruler, the hope of England, through to a bloated, morbidly obese tyrant that we know that Henry VIII eventually became. Keith Michelle uses every emotion available and delivers a nuanced and well-rounded depiction of the king. He actually got to play the part twice, as he was cast in the same role when a film, Henry VIII and His Six Wives, was released a couple of years later. In both, we see a man brought down by years and years of disappointment, anger and frustration. His Henry is not a particularly happy one, save for the early days of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, which is shown as being genuinely loving. What I think works so beautifully in Keith Michel's version of Henry is how much he wants to be seen to be doing the right thing, but is so managed by his counsellors around him that he's unsure of exactly what is going to happen, what his decisions will lead to, because those with ulterior motives are constantly at play, and I think that that would have absolutely been the case for Henry VIII. We see his boyhood love but eventual despondency in Catherine of Aragon, his lust and obsession with Anne Boleyn, which turns to spite and hatred, the almost condescending simplicity with which he considers Jane Seymour, his horror and disappointment in Anne of Cleves, his lust and attempts to recapture his youth in Catherine Howard before the heartbreak of her affairs, and the simple need for companionship with Catherine Parr before his discovery that she herself is a far more complex character than he had anticipated. Keith Michelle does a magnificent job. I think a big part of his acting, and why it is such a success, is the physicality. He looks so much like Henry VIII, and the costuming and makeup go a long way to helping tell that story. Unlike the Tudors, which featured a 30-inch waist Henry VIII at the end of his life, in the depictions with Keith Michelle, the actor's costumes and padding grew as the king himself would have done. Decisions which today may be called disrespectful, but back then were simply a way of conveying how much 
the real Henry VIII did change over time. And what this does so beautifully is it portrays a man who by the end of his life was basically severely disabled, which we know to be true. And so this automatically changes the way that his courtiers respond to him and how we as an audience engage. It changes what we think of as Henry, and it works perfectly. There's a scene in the Catherine Parr episode of the series, for example, where Henry is quite literally winched into the air and lowered onto his horse. And again, this is something that we know actually did happen. Keith Michelle portrays Henry as being utterly mortified by this, and I think that's totally believable. The king had once been a strong and muscular man, the ideal 16th century prince, and yet by the end of his life he was literally lifted into the air by a crane just so that he could get onto his horse's saddle. This is precisely why Keith Michelle's Henry VIII is so compelling. It doesn't hold back, it doesn't try and gloss over just how enormously his body and his mind changed over the course of his reign. And because of that, we see a glimpse into what must surely have been the reality of the real Henry VIII himself. The next depiction of Henry VIII that I wanted to discuss is the one of Ray Winston, who played the king in a two-part series in 2003 called Henry VIII, his lead co-star being Helena Bonham Carter, who played Anne Boleyn. From a physical standpoint, Ray Winston was a pretty good choice to play the king. He looks right, he's stout, he's got the right colouring, and Ray Winston is obviously a great actor. However, this cannot take away from the fact that this version of Henry VIII is arguably one of the worst. Again, it's got nothing to do totally with Ray Winston's acting, although one of the decisions that I think is a problem is that Ray Winston is famously a Cockney, and he did nothing to alter his voice, and so this is unquestionably the most you-what-mate version of Henry VIII that I think we've ever seen, which definitely detracts from the performance. I think the key issue with this depiction of Henry is that he has basically no redeeming qualities. Now I know that Henry VIII should not be viewed as a man with an abundance of good qualities, but he was a human and we know that in his earlier days he was viewed in a very positive light, but all of that is completely stripped away here. This Henry VIII is first and foremost a complete brute. He shouts and screams his demands, he abuses people, he's physically violent. In one particularly difficult scene, he forcibly rapes Anne Boleyn, and later on when he discovers Catherine Howard's former relationships, he barges into her bedroom and holds her down with a knife to her throat. You said a young girl like you could love an old man like me. I, I believe you! I, I believe you! I can kill you where you stand! Where you stand! <laughs> this is Henry VIII as an East End gangster, not as King of England, and it makes the King feel even more menacing than usual. He's not a complete fool though, I think that's one of the things I can say that's slightly positive about it. For one of the things that he does that I was quite impressed by is a scene in which the king makes it well aware to Cromwell that he knows he cooked up the evidence against Anne Boleyn and reminds him that like Anne Boleyn, Cromwell is dividing opinion among the English people. Alas, that is one of the very few positives I can say about the series. It's well made and the casting is broadly pretty strong, but it's filled with inaccuracies and as I say, we're left feeling that Henry VIII was nothing more than a violent psycho, which I know is part of his story, but by no means all of it. So from one extreme performance to another, 
it's time to explore the depiction which unquestionably brought the story of Henry VIII to a whole new audience, but for old snobs like me is probably the worst of the bunch, and that's Jonathan Rhys Myers in The Tudors. Before I go any further, I just want to caveat that Jonathan Rhys Myers is a great actor and has done lots of great work, but he was wholly the wrong choice for Henry VIII, in my opinion. And I actually hold the same opinion about Natalie Dormer, who is a great actress, but again, I feel was woefully miscast as Anne Boleyn. I know I'm in the minority there, and I'm sorry. My main issue with Jonathan Rhys Myers casting as Henry VIII is a physical one, and I know that shouldn't matter, but it kind of does. He looks nothing like Henry VIII, not even a little bit, and for me it really distracted from the performance. The first thing is that Jonathan Rhys Myers is of a relatively average height, standing at 5 foot 8. He's very lean, he's muscular, but he's very lean. He isn't a big guy, and even when Henry VIII was at his physical fittest, he was still described as gigantic in build. When you see Jonathan Rhys Myers standing beside Natalie Dormer, there's barely an inch between them, and so it just jarred for me. And I think that's one of the reasons why I found the casting of Damien Lewis and Claire Foy in the later series Wolf Hall so much better, because they looked right. The Tudors didn't go for accuracy, and therein lies the biggest problems for me. One of the other big distractions that I had in season one of The Tudors was another casting choice, and it was the fact that they they placed an actor in the series who would have been the ideal Henry VIII, but was cast to play a completely different part. And I do not mean Henry Cavill, who played a far too sexy Charles Brandon. I instead speak of Stephen Waddington, who played the Duke of Buckingham. Stephen Waddington would have been the perfect Henry VIII. He's tall, really broad, ginger hair and beard. He looks like Henry VIII. Jonathan Rhys Myers does not. And yes, I know I shouldn't be basing it on just looks, and I don't plan to, but it is such a big thing for me. I think when you're recreating something, when you're recreating a an image that is so famous as Henry VIII's, authenticity should, where possible, be adhered to. We only have to look at the final season of the show, when Henry VIII is married to Catherine Howard. He looks only marginally older and no less ravaged by age than he does in season one. It's just insulting to the audience, in my opinion. I suppose one benefit of the Tudors is that, a bit like Keith Michelle's performance, it does provide Jonathan Rhys Myers with the opportunity to act out almost the entirety of Henry VIII's reign, which is refreshing, as it also allows newer and younger audiences to learn about the lesser known aspects of his time as king, and indeed the less explored stories of some of Henry VIII's other wives. I think my big issue, however, is that it was all done through the prism of shock value, sex, and frankly, history dumbed down. A key feature of the show that drove me mad was the decision to weirdly merge the storylines of Henry VIII's two sisters into one sort of hodgepodge version of both Princess Margaret and Princess Mary's lives, as if the audience would have struggled with the concept of the king having two sisters. The show is also, as I referenced a moment ago, massively sexed up. Now, I know this is a deliberate way of snagging in a big audience. We only have to look at how much sex was in the first series of Game of Thrones. But with a series based on the most dramatic, shocking, and frankly unbelievable period from English history, we don't need the drama to be, to be ratcheted up. There was plenty of drama already, and it annoyed me that the producers of the Tudors felt the need to ultimately dumb it down. There are fleeting moments of genius, and I freely admit that, but they are few and far between for me. One of the things the show does do well, and I 
and I will give credit where credit's due, it's the only depiction of Henry VIII that I think really shows Henry VIII's terror of illness. This is well documented and drove the king to creating his own potions and lotions and no other film or television series has really covered that part of Henry VIII's personality and I think it was a really central part of his personality. So I'll, I, as I say, I'll give credit where credit's due. That was a really smart move, but it was a smart move among a sea of poor moves in, in my opinion. Jonathan Rhys-Meyers, he's committed to the role and his performances did grow over the series, but it just, for me, it can't distract from the wide issues that the whole show had. It was a series which was a case of some style over very little substance. In 2008, a year after the Tudors debuted, the story of Henry VIII was once more revisited, this time on the big screen for the big budget film of Philippa Gregory's book, The Other Boleyn Girl. For anyone who has not seen the film or read the book, The Other Boleyn Girl is primarily the story of Mary Boleyn, the less famous sister of Anne, played in the film by Scarlett Johansson opposite Natalie Portman as Anne Boleyn. Henry VIII is played by Eric Banner. So, where to start? Let's start with a positive. There's not many. <laughs> Eric Banner looks fucking great. Easily the sexiest Henry VIII ever put on screen. All broad-shouldered, muscular, fiery temper and darkly brooding. And the costumes in The Other Berlin Girl are stunning. Some of the most accurate ever created in my opinion, which is ironic given how inaccurate the storyline is. Anne Boleyn's execution costume, for example, is the closest to the written records that we have. But alas, that is kind of where the authenticity stops. Ultimately, what makes The Other Berlin Girl problematic is that underpinning it is the work of Philippa Gregory. Gregory is a fine writer and has made the stories of some of England's most familiar characters feel modern, engaging and accessible. The problem is that her work is largely fictitious, and this then leads to misunderstandings from those who quote her work, and by extension the films and television series based on them, as canon, which they absolutely aren't. Eric Banner was a great choice to play the part of Henry VIII from a physical perspective, and he does a fine job with what he's given, but the storyline is so removed from reality that it's difficult to take the film remotely seriously. It's also not meant to be Eric Banner's film, and it definitely isn't. It's the Boleyn sisters' film, their relationship, their struggles. Henry VIII is largely a supporting part of the story. I haven't read the book, The Other Boleyn Girl, so I cannot comment as to how much was invented for the film and isn't in the book itself, but some of the stuff that I just found most appalling was the scene in which Anne is viciously raped by Henry, and the suggestion that Anne briefly considers sleeping with her brother George in order to fall pregnant. It's just gross, and it isn't necessary. It's like I said a moment ago with the Tudors, the story's dramatic enough as it is. Why make it more shocking and more salacious? I just don't get it. Although a modest box office success, the film was not a critical success, with many complaining that it felt very rushed and had an erratic storyline, and these are sentiments that I completely agree with. Save a couple of positives, the costumes being the key one, and the acting talent assembled, which also included Dame Kristen Scott Thomas and Sir Mark Rylance as Elizabeth and Thomas Boleyn, the film is largely forgettable, inconsequential, and has done more damage to perceptions of Anne Boleyn than perhaps any film or television series ever made, and ultimately Eric Banner's Henry VIII is also pretty forgettable. 
The final depiction of Henry VIII that I wanted to cover today is Damien Lewis, who played the king in the magnificent 2015 series Wolf Hall opposite Sir Mark Rylance as Thomas Cromwell and Claire Foy as Anne Boleyn. Wolf Hall deals primarily with the story of Thomas Cromwell and was based on the first two books in the Wolf Hall trilogy from the late Dame Hilary Mantel, these being Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies. Damien Lewis's casting was an incredibly inspired bit of casting. He is a magnetic actor with the right stature and look to play the role of Henry VIII convincingly. Tall, broad and imposing, he is instantly recognisable as Henry VIII and provides one of the best interpretations of the king and certainly the best in recent memory, far surpassing Eric Banner and Jonathan Rhys-Meyers in my opinion. What undeniably helps Damien Lewis is the calibre of the acting talent that he's working with. Mark Rylance is possibly the greatest living actor on the planet, an opinion that I share with Steven Spielberg no less. And the two-hander scenes between Rylance and Lewis are among the strongest parts of the series, as are the scenes when Claire Foy's perfectly complex and spiky Anne Boleyn saunters into the mix. Damien Lewis plays Henry VIII as a man seeking almost constant assurance and approval, but the cleverness of Hilary Mantel's writing and the direction of the show in the hands of Peter Kosminski always makes the King's need for assurance seem paper-thin, as if he's constantly aware of how tenuous his and his family's right to the throne is, and the need to defend his actions in marrying Anne Boleyn but beneath all of it, he's too well aware that it could vanish in an instant. And this is what I think is so superb about Damien Lewis's work. She's very much looking forward to seeing her younger brother, aren't you, Dumpling? And I share her impatience. It has been a long enough wait. I suppose we must expect the country to mourn for her. She was once given the title of queen. Mistakenly. Majesty, do you wish the body brought to St. Paul's? We will lay her to rest in Peterborough. It will cost less. A lot of people hated Claire Foy's portrayal of Anne Boleyn, finding her rude and demanding and aggressive, which she absolutely is, but I adored her performance. I thought it was incredible, because I thought what was underpinning it, what was underpinning that bad behaviour, was this almighty sense of insecurity. She plays Anne Boleyn as a woman desperately trying to cling on to a very greasy pole, and I think that would have been absolutely true of the real woman. Henry VIII's insecurities are the defining characteristic of Damien Lewis's portrayal, and I think it works really nicely. Another aspect which the show does well, certainly over other depictions, is the camaraderie between Henry and Cromwell, which I believe would have also been true of the real men. Henry was famous for his willingness to place great importance into the hands of men of humble birth, and Walpole conveys that more than any other depiction, whilst doubling down on the clear hatred that Cromwell, in turn, faces at the hands of the old nobility, most notably from Thomas Howard, third Duke of Norfolk, played to arrogant perfection with spit and venom by Bernard Hill. Damien Lewis will be reprising the role of Henry VIII when season two of Wolf Hall drops later this year, and I cannot wait to see it. Wolf Hall truly was landmark television, and so I'm confident that season two will be every bit as wonderful, even though it will not feature Claire Foy. As I discussed in the episode's opener, the next depiction that we will have of Henry VIII is from Jude Law. 
nearly all of the reviews of the film Firebrand mark out his work as being the film's highlight. It is believed that Jude Law went very method with his acting. For example, he deliberately smeared himself in foul-smelling ointments ahead of takes to try and engender the genuine repulsion that Henry VIII's courtiers would have had to have contained with. He could famously be smelt from three rooms away by the end of his life. The main thing I'm excited about with Firebrand, though, is the fact that it's something new. It's not another version of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, but instead Henry VIII and his sixth wife, Catherine Parr, a woman far too often considered an afterthought when assessing the overall story of Henry VIII. Depictions of the king have been an almost constant since the dawn of film at the turn of the 20th century. What I've covered today is just a smattering of the depictions of Henry VIII, although the ones I've covered are easily the most recognisable. There are others, including T.P. McKenna in the independent film Monarch, which I adore, even if it does feel quite budget. There's Jared Harris in the TV low-budget version of The Other Boleyn Girl, Rory O'Connor in The Spanish Princess, and as I very briefly mentioned, Sid James in Carry On Henry. Across the many depictions of Henry VIII, I think something of the real man can be seen in all of the performances, but as I made very clear today, they do vary in success, and I'm unapologetic in my distaste for some of the decisions taken with Henry VIII's storyline, particularly in the more modern interpretations. He is, of course, a monumental figure from our past, easily the most famous king possibly in world history, so it's entirely natural that so many versions of him have been seen over the years, and that his story has attracted such major talent to play him. I just wish that producers respected the history and strove for accuracy wherever possible. To not do so, to my mind, is quite lazy. I do believe that it's Keith Michelle who is the King Henry VIII to beat. His performance was just extraordinary, so broad and multi-layered. For me, he is Henry VIII, just like jean Vierre Bouchold is Anne Boleyn and Glenda Jackson is Elizabeth I. I'm certainly really excited for Jude Law's performance, if the critical reviews are anything to go by, it's going to be one for the ages, and I cannot wait to see what happens with season two of Wolf Hall. But until then, I shall go back to watching the earlier incarnations of Henry VIII, whilst leaving my DVD box set of the Tudors to collect dust. And so, that brings me to the end of this week's episode of the Tudor Chess Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I would love to hear from you if you have suggestions for future podcast episodes. So please do slide into my DMs, as the kids say, on Instagram and let me know what you'd like to hear more about. As a reminder, again, I do release a weekly bonus episode on my Patreon account, but also via Apple Podcast subscriptions. Just search for The Tudor Chest. Thank you again for listening and speak soon. <laughs>